Well, you notice the title that I've given to today's lesson is The Stolen Blessing, which I put in quotation marks because he stole it and yet it was his. And so there's a little bit of an interesting uh, contradiction in terms there, but the word stolen certainly helps to portray the fact that this is a rather infamous chapter in the Bible, more on that in a moment. Just as a reminder, in case you weren't with us last week, I mentioned skipping chapter 26. It's just because it's just not devoted at all to the life of Jacob. In fact, it's the only full chapter that you have in the Bible that's completely devoted to Isaac. We see some more about Isaac, primarily now as it uh, pertains to the story of Jacob. And I, I mentioned this to you before, I styled Isaac, the unremarkable patriarch, not because he's insignificant, just because the story doesn't emphasize him, we're not given a lot of information. There's a purpose for this, and it's not, it's not to denigrate Isaac. It's more just that when you think about Abraham being the um, seminal patriarch, it starts with him, the original covenant promise is given to him, but Isaac is the one who is the father of Jacob, and Jacob is the father, as I pointed out last week, of the 12 patriarchs. So the story needs to concentrate on both Abraham and Jacob, but primarily Jacob, because this is what God is doing. God is developing this promise. God is moving forward the program of redemption, and it's primarily taking place through Isaac's son, not so much Isaac. So I, I don't know that I would want to call him a placeholder, um, it is really interesting to look at some of the, the stuff that we have on him. There's some positive stuff. There's some negative stuff. Unfortunately, what we see today is negative. So that brings me to this next comment. As chapters in the Bible go, I have to tell you, to me, this is a really sad chapter. It's sad when people for whom your exp expectations are high disappoint you. Therefore, it's always wise to remember that the best of men are men at best, and that anyone can disappoint you, and we all fail each other from time to time. This is a, a huge underscoring of that truth, because this is our star family, right? That's kind of what I was just saying again by way of introduction. So you're kind of looking for them to be exemplary, and you're looking for them to teach a lot of lessons, and boy, they do. They're just not all positive, and that's the way this particular chapter is. This star family, I mean every one of the stars in this star family is bedimmed, and they are bedimmed by their reliance on human ingenuity and on their exhibition of willfulness. And I realize that I'm using fairly strong language to bring these points out to you, and I hope that that doesn't keep you from being willing to see yourself in this, because that's really the whole point. This is kind of convicting, really, when you realize some of these things are threads that we've seen before. We saw uh, some deception on the part of Abraham and, and Isaac in, in his dealings with the Philistine chief about his wife, and the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. So... Anyway, here's this. Talk about a lesson. I mean, if you want a broad-based lesson to take away from what we have today, I would say think about Galatians 6-7. Be not deceived. In other words, don't kid yourself in the vernacular. God is not mocked. 
Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Folks, I would hasten to point out to you that that is a natural law in the realm of agriculture. And it's a spiritual law. And the God who created those laws, you can't flaunt him. That's what that verse is saying. And I've mentioned this to you, I think, before. I realize that not everything maybe is, is endorsable, but I really like the quotation that is most widely attributed to Charles Stanley, who's the late Charles Stanley now, but he used to put it this way whenever he would be talking about this subject. He would say, you reap what you sow more than you sow later than you sow. That's a pretty good way of capturing not only what's true in agriculture, but what is true in our spiritual lives. You reap what you sow, more than you sow, later than you sow. And we are really going to see that in this lesson today. So let's talk about initial blame. We're good blame passers along, aren't we? (laughs) That's also part of human nature. I mean, the minute God confronted Abraham, what did he say? I mean, Adam. The minute God confronted Adam, what did he say? Well, the wife that you gave me. I mean, we are really good at passing the buck. I want to say this to you because I think this is an overarching spiritual principle. Every one of the key players in this, so Isaac, Rebekah, there's four of them, Jacob and Esau. Every one of them exhibits what I told you already. Are you looking for somebody to kind of start with? I'll start here. Because there's an overarching spiritual principle, and that is that the the man is the spiritual head of the home. That's his role. And so, I think about it this way. I think about this a lot. You know, we're, my wife and I are driving places, and if we come up to a stop sign or whatever, she's generally the passenger. She likes to help me by looking on the right. And there came a day when I realized, you know, as helpful as that is, I don't have to crane my neck And I don't have to see through that telephone pole or whatever else it is on my right that's blocking my vision. Ultimately, I'm responsible for the decision I make. So I usually try to look, even if she doesn't know. (laughs) And it has nothing to do with not trusting her. It has to do with, ultimately, I'm the person operating the car. And if something happens, it's going to hit on her side. That's one thing. Also, I don't want to really deal with the patrolman about the matter, so because it's going to be my responsibility. It's going to be my fault. Who's most to blame? Well, that's going to be Isaac, I think, although, boy, the others are <laughs> they're, they're vying for the lead. Well, here's some things to think about this to develop this idea. How, how do we get to this? Why would we say this about Isaac beyond just the fact that he's in this role and he's responsible to God as the head of his home? All right, here's a question. Does he know about the oath that was between his two sons about the birthright. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us. But it's hard, although it certainly isn't impossible, as these stories tell us. It's kind of hard, you know, when you're dwelling in tents, and they didn't just have one little pup tent, but if you've ever seen how that's set up, they're rather extensive. But it's kind of hard when you're living with people like that to hide something like this. And, uh, but, you know, back in chapter 25, verse 23 is what I'm referring to when God, uh, uh, well, so the oracle is what, in other words, there's the oath, 
between the two brothers, when he sold his birthright, that's actually down in verse 33, Jacob said, swear to me now. That's why I would call this an oath. In other words, this is more than just sort of a little bargain, although, you know, your word should be your bond. He says, swear to me now. So he swore to him. He, he gave his word. He made an oath. Esau did. Whether or not Jacob knows about that, or, or Isaac knows about that or not, he does know about this oracle from God. That is my point. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples shall be within you. Uh, within you shall be divided or incompatible. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. He knows this. He knows that God, by, by divine choice, has already appointed. And folks, think about how many times we have this example in the book of Ex Genesis, and it had already happened in the case of uh, Ishmael and Isaac, so he, he saw it even in his own family, where God reverses the order. God's not obligated to do things exactly how they mo make the most sense to us. God's not obligated to any man. And so when God makes this statement, there's two things going on here. There's an oath between the brothers, and then there, there is a, an explicit, a clear statement from God about what his will is in this matter of the conveyance of the Abrahamic blessing and who is going to be the recipient of that and the person through whom God works. He knows this. But what's the problem? The problem is they had favoritism going on in that home. We saw that in chapter 25, verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Bad family plan. But it was going on in that home. And so he is completely engaging in how he views things, even though he knows how God has said to view things. And so, here's what I want to say about that. I mean, and I, look, if I'm pointing a finger at Jacob, you've got to understand where I'm coming from. I've got three pointed back to me. But his decision, I mean, there is just really no way to varnish over this. It's governed by human wisdom. Why do I say human wisdom and sense? Well, this is a really interesting thing. You might not have noticed this in the story before. You noticed it, but maybe didn't notice it to this extent. The five human senses, every single one of them is in play here. First of all, sight, it starts off by telling us in verse 4 that his eyes were, or in the beginning of the story, that his eyes were dim. That's verse number 1. So sight is at play. But then taste. You know, there are six times. It's not always in Isaac's mouth. But this phrase starts off with him, go and get me savory meat such as I love, is how the King James <laughs> renders it. It's just hard to get that out of your mind. Savory meat such as I love. The ESV says delicious food. But I only gave you two references, but there are six times, sometimes out of his mouth, sometimes out of the mouth of Rebecca, that this is referred to. So he was known to like this meal. Have you ever asked people before, what's your favorite meal? And a lot of people will answer right away. They, I mean, you know, it's kind of like if, I won't use this analogy because people ask me my favorite hymn, and I, I have trouble with that. I, I, I will always give you an answer, okay? I will always give you an answer. But there's so many I like that I won't say you can't make a mistake, but anyway. Some people stumble when you ask them this question. And 
he was apparently um, not only known for his delight in this particular meal, but probably what's going on here is he considered himself a bit of a connoisseur. I won't say a fine wine because <laughs> that's not quite the illustration we need in here this morning. But you know, there are folks who kind of consider themselves uh, pretty good with their tastes. Maybe that's why five times that particular one is mentioned. Touch, of course, is mentioned because, first of all, Jacob brings it up. He says, you know, this is not a good idea. He's hairy. I'm smooth. It's not going to be too hard to get this one figured out. And, and so we won't say anything more about that. Hearing is mentioned because when in verse 22, if you look at what he says there, he says the voice is the voice of Jacob. You feel like Esau, but the voice is the voice of Jacob. So hearing is in play, but also smell. And th this is really some indication of just how smart and just how cunning Rebekah was. We don't often think about that. We think of Jacob. We keep thinking of Jacob. I mean, he learned from the best. Because when you read in the story, this is a little added detail. Verse 15, Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. She not only knew her husband, she knew her sons. And this is an extra touch. She not only you know, has the thought for how to figure out about the smooth of his neck and the, the, the backs of his hands, but she ups the ante a little bit. We'll just make him smell like Esau, too. Not too hard to do. And that really appeals to Isaac. I mean, it's part of what helps to convince him. So, yeah, we'll back up because that's all we're going to do with him. But let's talk about Esau for a moment because the clock is always moving. Any blame? For Esau, well, yeah, I mean, if you give your word and then you're willing to go back on it. I mean, uh, he's, he also sees the opportunity to capitalize on the weakness of his father, which undoubtedly he's aware of. Undoubtedly, he knows he's his father's favorite. So when his father comes to him and says, you know what, and there's nothing in the text that would indicate that, that, that Isaac's got a foot in the grave. In fact, we know that Isaac lives at least another 20 years, and I, I found it interesting, but un. I was unable quite to confirm how he deduces this, but W.H. Griffith Thomas says that he had over 40 more years to live, but we know it was at least 20 because when they ended up having to send Jacob out of there, and Jacob was with Laban 20 years before he starts his journey back, now how, how much time was involved in that? You wouldn't think that it was another 20 years. I'm not sure how he gets that, but there's nothing in the text to indicate that he has a foot in the grave, more just that I think he realizes he's approaching the point in life. Doesn't help any that he can't see. You know, these things bug you as you get older. Start falling apart. Now, he doesn't know when, but he just wants to be sure he gets this done. And so he says, get your weapons, go to the field, make some food, I'll bless you. I want to be sure I get this done. Well, Esau doesn't say, well, Dad, you've got to remember or dad, I, you know, there's something I never told you about. We, I, I promised Jacob. I, I shouldn't have done it, but I did. No, he's, he's off. He sees an opportunity to capitalize here. And Rebecca, like I said before, don't underestimate her. I think that Jacob took after her 
Not that he didn't take after Isaac any, but I think he really took after her. I think the story would bear this out. You have to sniff a couple times. In other words, there's nothing explicit. But it's like when this happens, it's a, a little bit like the way it was when that day Esau came in and he said, I'm famished. And Jacob's got the stew going, and oh, it smells so good. And he says, give me some of that red pottage there. And he says, sell me this day your birthright. He's ready. He's got a plan. I think the same thing is true here. I think she's seen this coming. She knows her husband is intent on doing this. She just doesn't know when. So when she hears this, it's like this plan is all ready to go. What she tells him to do is all ready to go. She jumps into action. The problem is what kind of action? And the question for me is, and the question for you is, when we hear about this, that, or the other, is that our first inclination to jump into action? Or do we pray first, or think about it first, or wonder what God might be doing, or do we jump into action? Because, you know, sometimes our own abilities, our own intelligence, our own scheming works against us in those cases. That's, I think, what happens here. And then, of course, you have Jacob and his response to this. You notice what's really interesting about this. When his mother proposes this to him, it's a bald-faced deception. And he doesn't bother to say to her, well, you know, Mom, this isn't good. I mean, I, I know where you're coming from, and I, I, I'm right with you, but this is not right. Now, he doesn't, he's not worried about that. The only thing he brings up is, if I get caught, I'll seem like a mocker to him. In other words, here's the idea behind this. It is a word that literally means mocking. And you and I are probably looking for a word there that means to deceive, which is a, like a secondary meaning of this. The idea would be what you would say, what he would anticipate his father saying if he got caught, which would be, who do you think you're kidding? So that's what he's talking about in verse 11. He's talking about getting caught. He's not talking about the spiritual realities of what he's doing wrong. All right, we have to move along. Ultimate responsibility. So here's what I was talking to you about a moment ago. Everybody's got a problem here, but Jacob is the one who's ultimately going to go along with this, is he not? So Rebecca and Jacob, they have a righteous cause, don't they? They do. They're both in the right. But when you're in the right and other people are in the wrong, do you fight fire with fire? Or do you let God, I'm not saying there's never a credible action that we're supposed to take, but I'm just saying there's no hint of involving God in this. Jacob is still responsible for his actions. And think about this. Here's just some things to think about, how serious this is. He's so ambitious. Remember what we're talking about is Jacob, the struggle for blessing. He's so ambitious. He's so intent on being absolutely certain that he acquires that blessing, that when his mother says, upon me be thy curse, he goes along with that. So to me, that ratchets this up a little bit. He lies to his father three times. You can notice this in verse number 19. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. When his father says, who is this? Then in the next verse, this is worse. This is worse. When I was reading this a moment ago, I heard somebody give a sanctified groan. That's about what I would, would say. Isaac says to him, he's a, little, he's a little suspicious here. 
It's like that guy that was sitting next to me on an airplane one time, and there was a problem, and everybody knew there was a problem with the airplane. And we weren't quite sure what was going to happen. And this guy, I mean, we're sitting here in uh, Ghana, West Africa. So you're already a little on edge. And this, the black guy sitting next to me, tickled me because he was from Worcester in the U.S. And he, he, he spoke with that accent. It just sort of tickled me. But he looked at me and he says, something is fishy. And I was thinking the whole time, something is fishy. It was. They turned around and went back. But anyway, that aside, he, he knows something's fishy here. So look what he says. I mean, you talk about upping the ante. He asks, how is it you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Or as the King James says, brought it to me. In other words, the venison. How'd you... How'd you get this so quickly? Oh, God brought it to me. Now we're going to involve God in our wrongdoing. But here's where we got to. This is, this is where it gets uncomfortable for me. Maybe it will for you. You know, fundamentally what the issue here is, is a failure to live by faith. And I'm going to develop that for you, just a piece. Have you ever thought about this, how difficult it is to live by faith? Because I am so prone, and you are so prone, to take things into our own hands. And I'm not saying there are not times when God indicates a specific action to you in response to a situation. If you have that, then you have everything you need. But lacking that, we better pause and figure out what's going on. Why do I say this? Well, neither one of them seems to believe. That is, mama and son. Neither one of them seems to believe God can keep his promise. I mean, this is deja vu, right? This is Sarah all over again in Abraham, where the years go by, the years go by, the years go by. They've been promised a son. They don't have a son. They say, well, you know, we better help God out. We can help God out. What about Hagar? Mm-hmm. What about Hagar? We've had problems ever since, haven't we? What about Hagar? But that's us. That's us all over the place. God made that promise. God made that determination in that oath. They don't seem to think God can bring that to pass, but you know, not yet. beloved, you and I are just as bad. Just as bad. They both fall back on their considerable powers of cunning. That's why I say don't underestimate either of these, but Jacob learned from the best. In fact, someone has made the observation, and I think this is kind of a, an astute comment, who is the better hunter after all? It said back in chapter 25, verse 27, that, I, uh, that Esau was a hunter. He was the hunter. In a lot of ways, Jacob is also a hunter. In a little different realm, in a little different way, he's hunting for that blessing, He's ready when his brother comes in famished, tired. He's hunting. Takes advantage of the unwary prey. He's still hunting for that blessing by deceiving his father. So, and one more thought. Ironically, and this is why I called your attention to the quotation marks in the title, what they plot to steal was what God already gave to Jacob by divine appointment. 
how much do we really need to help God out? Quotation is often used, and sometimes in a more of a financial context, but I think it fits at this point. I've always enjoyed and appreciated this quotation. Hudson Taylor, some of you probably did some reading in the recent missionary reading contest from Hudson Taylor about Hudson Taylor. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. But you know, folks, when we don't do God's work in God's way, we get into big-time problems. But God is very capable of supplying. We just need to keep hearing that. We just need to keep hearing that because every day we forget. Here's the last one. There's a predictable outcome to all this. What did we say at the beginning? You reap what you sow, more than you sow, later than you sow. Is that really true? Oh, wow. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this because we'll be seeing it and seeing it and seeing it. But of course, here's one of the saddest. I said this was a sad chapter. This is one of the saddest things. This, this family is forever fractured by what they did at this point. They'll never be the same. There are going to be repercussions, as we're going to see in a moment, that just can't be undone. You can't undo this kind of thing. And so it says here, I mean, Esau is outraged. He realized for the second time now he's been outdone by his brother. Verse 36, is not he named rightly Jacob, for he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And again, it's too little too late, but Esau is not the subject of our study so much. Have you not reserved, he says to his father, a blessing for me? Talk about irrevocability. Talk about not being able to beat these laws that God has put in place. Look what Isaac says. You can't undo this. Behold, I have made him Lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me. The author to the Hebrews says, and it's brought out here, he's crying at this point, trying to change his father's mind. Look what Isaac says. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, and notice how the ESV translates this. Because if you're more familiar with the King James, it just renders it of, which is legitimate. But probably this is a better rendering. Because this, both of the words, do and fatness, or whatever you've got going on here, have a preposition attached to the front, which is how Hebrew does things. The preposition is a separate word, but when you use it with a noun like this, it's attached. And that preposition, min, means from or away from. So this is, this is, in other words, stronger language. And what he's saying to him is, I gave him the grain and the dew and the fatness of the earth. What am I going to give you? And so he gives him a blessing which is appropriate for what he realizes, finally realizes has happened. The outworking of God's plan and a recognition of what Esau's character was really like. He was not worthy of the Abrahamic blessing. He was an immoral and a profane person, the Bible tells us. His father couldn't have been unaware of those proclivities and actions. 
And so it says, behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. I already gave that to him. You're going to be away from that. Well, where did he end up? Edom, which is what he's named for. And if you've ever traveled in Bible lands, yeah, wow. I mean, don't complain about the heat and humidity here. I'm guilty as you are, okay? I'm not a heat and humidity person. But I mean, when you look at that territory we're talking about now, it's wild, it's inhospitable, it's dry, it's arid, it's infertile. And if you read the next part of this, by your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother, but when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. There are two things going on here, and I think one of the most astute comments that I've ever read on this verse is given by Derek Kidner in his commentary on Genesis, where he says, his father, who finally realizes what's going on and conforms to it, gives to him a blessing which is totally suitable for his character. He is free to go and to live a lifestyle that is both unblessed and undisciplined. And that's the type of person Esau was. But he wasn't real happy about this, as you gather. So Rebecca swings into action again. I mean, she's never too far away from a plan. <laughs> I just see us. I'm not making fun of her. She says, if you look at that verse 44, well, here's the plan. She says, she, I mean, look at how smart this is. I, you know, okay, I'll use word cunning again. How does she accomplish delivering Jacob from Esau's wrath? Well, she knows how. All she has to do is go to her husband and suggest, he married those two Hittite girls, and they are a royal pain. Well, she didn't have to convince Isaac about that. We better send him over there, kind of like Abraham did, to get you a wife. We better send him over there and to my brother Laban's house. Smart plan, right? But you know, you're never going to outsmart God. You're never going to outsmart God. I don't care if, how smart you are. Look at what she says in verse number 44. She says, and stay with him, that is her brother, a while until your brother's fury turns away. Good luck with that. I say time heals all wounds, but you know it's not going to be a while because literally, and the King James nails this one, literally a while is a few days. Now, you say that's a figure of speech. Maybe, but it's a figure of speech designed to emphasize it won't be that long. I won't miss you that long. I won't be separated from the son of my love that long. Just a few days. Huh. It's only a 400-mile trip, so figure how long that takes to get there, and then be there for a month or so till Esau cools down. Then you got, yeah, it's a long trip to get back, but maybe six months, maybe a year, which is what she's thinking. Well, it turned into 20. You know this, and I know that, because you can't beat God. 
Not only that, and I, I think this statement is sustained. I don't think you can disprove this statement. I, I, I didn't originate it, but I think you can sustain it. I don't think she ever saw him alive again. I think she died. When he comes back at last and finally makes his way to Beersheba, it's only Isaac who's there, who's mentioned. I don't think she ever saw him alive again. Talk about consequences. Talk about sowing and reaping. So here's what I want to say in conclusion. So there is not a person in this room this morning, awake or asleep, <laughs> who doesn't want God's blessing. We want it in our homes. We want it in our finances. We want it in our marriages. We want it in our jobs. And if you're in ministry, you really want it on your ministry. Jacob is all about securing God's blessing, but how? I have to ask myself, how? I have to ask myself, I already know what Jacob was doing, how? If we don't embrace doing it God's way and according to his will, problems, Look at verse 33. I was alluding to this, but I do want to call your attention to it as we close. As I say, Isaac realized the jig was up. Then Isaac trembled very violently. So we didn't read these verses. I apologize. And said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. And before he gives Esau a chance to answer, Look what he says. Yes, and he shall be blessed. Can't beat God. You can't outsmart God. You have to give Isaac credit for this. He's been wrong, but he understands this at this point, and that is his statement in which he expresses, I submit, I surrender. Better to get there sooner is all I can say before this kind of problem is unleashed in your family or in your ministry or in your job. Oh, wise to come back to another biblical illusion. We'll be like them in that we sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. You know, that's Hosea 8, 7. For they sowed the wind and they reaped the whirlwind. What is this that we said at the beginning? You reap what you sow more than you sow later then you sow the wind and the whirlwind. The whirlwind is more. Folks, we've got to be really careful how we set these consequences in motion because here's the point. You can choose your sin. You've heard this before. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose the consequences. Some of them are predictable, and some of them are totally unforeseen, as they were in the case of this particular family. One more item of housekeeping before we pray. Else we shall as they S-O-W. <laughs> if you have your outline, not S-O. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we could spend. I pray, Lord, that you would just encourage us, strengthen us. Lord, we stand so guilty so often for doing this, so 
often we fail to wait on you when we know that the psalmist tells us, wait on the Lord and be of good courage and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Isaiah reminds us, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Give us renewed determination to do your work according to your will and in your way. In Jesus' name, amen.